It's the first time I'm doing a podcast. So I'm really excited. People need to sort of uh, start moving out of their skin in East India. So I think capital raising is not the toughest part. We found that there's enough capital to invest in entrepreneurs, but there are not many entrepreneurs who can run with that capital. How do you dodge something like that? How do you dodge that kind of a monster in your head? Initially, when uh, I joined these funds, it was more about... Agas, I want to talk about you. You told me that you pivoted four times. Honestly speaking, when we graduated, September 11th happened. All hiring was frozen for three years. I think that was the first pivot. Second pivot was, third pivot was, that was the kind of the fourth pivot. East India is very specific. And I feel like not a lot of things are focused on, you know, the eastern side of India. Yeah, I mean, if you look at total revenue of most companies, East India will contribute, let's say... I am born and brought up in Calcutta, in India, and lived here pretty much all my life. Uh, went abroad to study, first to the US briefly, and then I went to uh, UK to do my master's. Then worked in London for a bit and came back to Calcutta. So, as a location-wise, Calcutta is my hometown, and I'm sort of my friends and family mostly live around here. Uh, when it comes to my profession, I was always interested in uh, innovation and new ideas and meeting interesting people and, you know, not the same genre and kind of people that you meet because of your birth or your schooling, etc. So when I came back from my master's from Leeds uh, in 2002, December, I decided that I want to do something with innovation. And uh, we got into the fund business in 2005. So I was involved with a real estate fund, then an infrastructure fund uh, on the strategy part, as well as the fundraising part. Um, and then I wanted to do something with early stage tech companies. And I joined this company called Brand Capital, which is the wing of Times of India, which does an ads for equity program and worked there for a couple of years. And then I decided I want to do something on my own now. And that's when I started this uh, angel network called Calcutta Angels, uh, which is an early stage uh, angel network, which uh, primarily had members and invested in startups based out of East India and also the rest of the country. And uh, post that, I felt that there's not enough pipeline coming from East India. And uh, I sort of started an angel uh, mentorship platform called Neoleap. Uh, which is now seven years old and we've mentored close to 14 startups over there, uh, mostly from East India. And uh, lastly, I became a partner in Anchor Group, which is a Swiss-based uh, company, which is a boutique fund management company that invests in early stage tech companies and then also gets these tech companies to India by way of partnerships. So wearing multiple hats and I'm a keen sportsman, so I play golf. Uh, which is my latest uh, sort of passion. I used to play a lot of cricket earlier uh, and, you know, played a lot of sports. Let's, let's roll it back. Let's roll it back to the beginning. So you talk about going to the UK and going to Leeds University. What was that experience like and what, what caused you to go to the UK and not anywhere else? So uh, I didn't go for my undergrad. I went for my master's. Uh, I did my undergrad in Xavier's, then worked. I did an internship in a factory in Kota, Rajasthan, 
and then I was in Delhi and all this while I was basically figuring out what I want to do in my higher studies, right? Because I don't want to go and just do something for the sake of it and not know what to do when I come back. So I researched on what I really want to do, which is international business and uh, stakeholder management, strategic alliances, early stage innovation. And I researched and I found that some professors in Leeds University are good and are well-renowned in this field, not only in Europe, but also in Asia. And that's how I landed up in Leeds because they have a good international business program. And pretty diverse culture, you know, big university, I like that. So, you know, those were the two motivating factors for me to land up in Leeds. Where did this interest in international business come about? Like, how did that start? So I think uh, it's not from a particular... Uh, ecosystem that I was born or brought up in because most of our businesses were sort of India focused. But I think as a person, I'm very outgoing and, you know, I like to meet people from different cultures and different societies. So I think I always like to interact with people on a global platform, right? So that's why there are a lot of good universities in India and there are universities in US and UK as well, which are uh, focused on, let's say, marketing or finance or HR. But my sort of internal uh, sort of nature is to interact with people from different sort of cultures and backgrounds. And that's how I think this international business uh, interest came about. East India is very specific. And I feel like not a lot of things are focused on, you know, the eastern side of India. And your love for East India may be as a niche that nobody is targeting. Maybe that's what came about it. Or maybe you can expand on why East India. It is it is very different. Yeah, I mean, if you look at total revenue of most companies, East India will contribute, let's say, 5% of the total revenue. So in terms of revenue size, it's not going to be significant. But at the same time, there's an ecosystem here that needed sort of Philip. And, uh, you know, when I came back, everybody said, yeah, East India is not the place to be. Uh, there's not much action out here. But then I thought that's where the opportunity is, right? So we really created this angel network and within three years, we became sort of India's third largest angel network. And we kept growing it and growing it and then we merged it with another angel network. And the response from people uh, who wanted to invest in startups was fantastic because people did not have that opportunity to look at other businesses given the fact that you know east india was sort of uh, in the background given the fact that you know there was 30 years of rule of a particular ruling party which really took the state backward but then the younger generation sort of grew up got educated worked in large companies and then uh, came back to calcutta and then uh, they were eager to be part of the larger ecosystem so the bridge that was created uh, was significant uh, for the entire sort of uh, business community here in East India to take part in the innovation ecosystem that's happening in the rest of the country. So in a sense, yes, it was not keeping pace with the rest of the country, but there was an opportunity to sort of uh, plug and play into what's happening in the rest. So I think that's where I played a part. For me, transactions are always very scary. For somebody out of college trying to understand transactions is always like a monster. 
you know, how do you conduct it? How do you open a fund? You hear about private equity funds and investment banks, but then you have to conduct all of these specialized transactions and then how are they structured? You know, there are such complicated structures. How does somebody who has just finished their master's come back to India targeting a very niche thing while India is very new in finance? How do you dodge something like that? How do you dodge that kind of a monster in your head? Well, so I think initially when uh, I joined these funds, it was more about uh, strategy work rather than structuring. So the structuring was done more by the senior people. So the strategy work included uh, things like, you know, uh, understanding the competitive ecosystem, which markets to go after, which particular verticals to look at within, let's say, the infrastructure space. So let's say you have roads, ports, airports, which one should you focus on? What is the government policy? Uh, then researching on who are the investors out there who are looking to put money in this sector, in SPI in India. So I think initially when you start out, the structuring work is a bit uh, left to the senior people. So in that way, you get to learn in meetings and uh, basically when you interact with them about how to structure the, the transactions. So in that sense, I was a bit uh, sort of lucky. So it's essentially a continuation of the education in a more practical sense. Yeah. So luckily I was able to apply whatever I learned uh, into my uh, immediate work, which is rare in East India, like Akhil was saying, because it was a very specific niche kind of uh, play which was happening in this company, uh, Shrey Venture Capital, basically. It was an infrastructure company which started an infrastructure fund. So they had a spun off a division of theirs called uh, Sri Venture Capital, which is uh, which was raising funds and putting money into roads, airports, etc. So there was a backing of a large corporate group, and there was a small team which was handling uh, this kind of work. So we had uh, enough responsibility and leeway to s sort of function as an independent unit, and while being supported by a large corporate. And so we got a lot of benefit from this large corporate in terms of process system, uh, how to organize things, management, bandwidth, etc. And we got enough freedom at our end at a young age to sort of uh, look at what's happening globally. And that sort of tied in with my international business uh, experience in Leeds and uh, helped me sort of gel in with what's happening globally and how to apply it in, in India. I would assume the businesses you dealt with in the whole East case scenario was were smaller, right? As you say, only 5% of the revenue driven by the country is driven by the East. So when you deal with smaller businesses, especially 2002 is so early in the game, how do you convince such businesses on stuff like equity? You know, How do you even educate them? How do you begin to tell them that, oh, you can give me a piece of your business and I will help you grow? They, they would like to think, it's a scam. Like, I come from Panipat, right? If you go to a textile house and give them something like this in 2002, they'll just make you run away. So how were you able to, like, educate them and how were you able to actually grab a hold of this kind of a problem? So 2003, uh, four actually, we were doing more of the stuff that we spoke about, more transactions rather than early-stage tech investing because the infrastructure fund was looking at large projects which needed equity. So equity was either provided by promoters or provided by uh, financial partners. So in a sense, we were like financial partners to these large projects or large 
companies which knew what equity was about. So from 2003-4 to 2012, I was 2010, I was doing the larger kind of uh, corporate work. So there it was not so difficult because it was more at a, a top holdco level where the businesses are already mature and they already have enough uh, exposure to this ecosystem of taking equity from outsiders. But at the same point, there was an issue in terms of valuations because I think the valuation uh, part was not very well understood in the unlisted space. So if you ask me about what was the sort of challenges that we faced, uh, it was more about promoters not understanding that the valuation in the unlisted space is different from listed space. Because in the listed space in India, people still look at, you know, what is the profit of the business, uh, what are the EBITDA levels, the PAT levels, etc. But in the unlisted space, it's about, you know, customer acquisition, growth story, uh, management team, all of that. And the two valuation parameters might be vastly different. So when you go to the LPs, let's say the limited partners who are the investors into the fund, uh, they will also question how you are valuing the startups. The promoter will also sort of question how you are valuing the startup. And you have to be sort of in the between saying that, okay. And then there's the third party, uh, the chartered accountants who will go by the standard parameters that has been set by the Indian government on valuation, etc. Even in the stock market, you sort of cannot value a company more than 50 times uh, price earning because people think it's uh, being manipulated. Whereas in the unlisted space, you can go up to any amount. I mean, 100x, 200x of uh, price earnings. There might not be profits at all. So I think some of those challenges we had to overcome at that point in time, which were which are still prevalent, I think. So in fact, you sort of answered my next question, which is going to be that how do you currently value? How do you sort of, um, since you're doing early stage tech investments and all, how do you currently do the valuations? So, I mean, there's not one benchmark. If you're in an industry which is uh, uh, well-recognized and there are a lot of players that have raised capital uh, earlier, then you benchmark it with those uh, players because there's already a precedent over there. So, let's say if you're going into a, a cab aggregation space, there's already Uber, Ola, etc., which have raised capital. There are other cab aggregation companies, so you benchmark yourself against that. Uh, if you're going into a space where there's not been enough uh, uh, work done on the valuation front, then it's basically at a very early stage as to what the promoter is willing to dilute and what the investor wants as a stake. So uh, just to go a bit deeper, the investor who, let's say, puts in half a million dollars into a company might say, okay, it's a huge risk for me. I want at least 20-25% stake. Whereas the promoter might say, okay, my company has got a solid platform and I'm growing really fast. And uh, I've got investors who are willing to put in that amount of capital for, let's say, a 15% stake or a 10% stake. So I think in the beginning, when you start raising capital, and there are different stages of raising early stage capital. I'm talking about the seed stage, uh, past the friends, family stage. Uh, that's when it's basically a negotiation between what the promoter is willing to give and what the investor is willing to take. So it's it's more of a give and take sort of relationship. As you move up the value chain uh, of funding, so let's say when you go to venture capital, that's when some numbers start coming into play. Like, you know, if you have $5 million of revenue, uh, you'll be valued at a multiple of your sales. 
if you have a large sort of EBITDA margin over there, you might be valued at, uh, the promoter might say, okay, I want to be valued at the EBITDA multiple because I have a very high EBITDA margin. Uh, somebody might say, I have uh, very high growth in terms of customer acquisition. So I want to be valued in the number of customers that I'm growing and the database that I'm creating over there. So for example, a PTM will say, I'm growing a large number of customers every year. I'm doubling it every year. Uh, revenue might not be consummate to the valuation, but uh, you know the ecosystem that I'm building is going to be phenomenally valuable and you can cross-sell products. So I think it's not one really benchmark when it comes to valuation. It's all different kinds of stories that are built across different verticals that people need to sort of look at the value, that inherent value that business brings to the market. I wish to talk about the transition of India from asset-heavy industry to the asset-light industry, right? So if you talk about, if you talk about um, production houses, if you ask them what their valuation is, they'll tell you my land is worth this much, this machine is worth this much, this machine is worth this much, I am worth my machines plus my land value. Right? And how do you go to such a company and tell them the existence of something like an, an EBITDA multiple? Right? Or tell them the existence of something like a sales multiple? And what kind of reactions do you get to some of these founders who are unaware of such a scenario? Or are you even involved in any of asset-heavy companies? So we are involved with uh, manufacturing companies more on the technology side. So if you look at uh, what we are doing with our uh, Swiss company, uh, Anchor Group, which does uh, work with industrial tech. So here we are looking at uh, manufacturers who want strategic alliances with these industrial tech companies. And a lot of times the investors, the manufacturers are looking to invest in these industrial tech companies, not the other way around. So we are not looking at manufacturers where we want to invest. Uh, so we actually have not come across this uh, issue till now because we are dealing with techpreneurs. Techpreneurs are basically technology guys who become entrepreneurs. So there the valuation aspect is again from the manufacturing or the traditional business side where they say we don't understand the valuation of the tech company. So actually, we have never gone to a large manufacturer and said, okay, we are going to value your company and we are going to invest because we, are, we don't play in that space. Um, but uh, just top of my head, I can say that, you know, uh, the entrepreneur will still, in India at least, uh, look at what are your assets uh, in terms of land, like you mentioned, land, machine, uh, customers, and uh, profit. So I think those are the four parameters that, traditional uh, business houses look at. But I think uh, what also one factor, one needs to factor is what are the use of technology in your manufacturing operations. For example, are you using predictive maintenance, for example? So we worked a lot in predictive maintenance. So are you using predictive maintenance technologies to increase your efficiency? So let's say there's a machine in the field, you're in an oil and gas company, The you have massive machines which are remote in nature, you cannot even have access to those machines. So you put sensors over there and those sensors will give you data and feedback as to what is the status and the state of the machine. Is there any wear and tear? What is the status, right? Now, a person has to go manually uh, in the traditional way, go and look at the machine, uh, inspect it. It takes time, there's downtime, and then give the feedback, then analysis happens, and then the machine again starts, right? So there's a lot of time wasted. Whereas if you have a predictive maintenance IoT sensor over there on that machine, it really reduces the downtime significantly 
and gives you that much operational efficiency which adds to your sort of EBITDA margin. So ultimately, if you see the use of technology in traditional manufacturing is going to increase your uh, valuation significantly. Then secondly, what is the M&A opportunity in your industry? So let's say in a traditional industry like tea, now a tea industry, tea garden, let's say, will not be valued at a very high multiple because the tea industry itself is very consolidated. It's a small growth sort of uh, area. But if you look at, let's say, software, software is a huge, uh, you know, growth story in terms of M&A. Uh, even if you look at traditional industries like metals, right? Some metal spaces are growing very fast because they are doing a lot of M&A. Uh, cement is growing very fast. So it really, again, depends on the nature of the industry and what is the opportunity for growth. And I think going forward, entrepreneurs or promoters of such companies need to sort of factor these in when you value these companies. Raghav, can you give us some examples of what you just spoke about? If you look at uh, a company in the metal space or let's say heavy engineering space like Tega Industries. So Tega Industries is uh, got listed in the stock exchange recently and they do a lot of IoT and predictive maintenance stuff. So there the valuation premium would be much higher than let's say a normal manufacturing company. Then if you look at a Tata company like Tejas Networks, which makes uh, equipment for the telecom industry. So there again, the valuation multiple is much higher compared to traditional manufacturers because they have a large market space they're catering to and they can introduce various technologies into their business to sort of increase the multiple. So I think anything related to telecom, IT, uh, heavy engineering, M&A opportunities are massive and these kind of companies will sort of do really well. Now that we are into examples, one of the most fun things about investment banking when I was practicing it was getting to talk to these people who are doing things which are beyond imagination, right? And you are in the tech space. And tech is the primary candidate for wowing you. So do, do you have like some wow moments over the years dealing with such entrepreneurs or did you have some wow experiences of products which you didn't, you could not even fathom? Yeah, so I mean, from Calcutta Angels, we invested in this company called iCure TechSoft. It's a rural healthcare platform. And that was our first investment uh, through Calcutta Angels. Uh, basically, what ex-Oracle guys, they created an IT backbone uh, and they went out and gave devices to uh, their uh, workers and the workers would go into the villages and get the data of the patients as to what is their basic parameters and there would be a doctor going with the health worker to the patients instead of the patient coming to the hospital because it's very tough for uh, people in India in rural towns and small towns and villages to have access to healthcare. So these workers would go there with a the doctor also on mobile vans, record the patient data, take the blood samples, etc. Uh, and send it uh, to the doctor who would analyze it and then give feedback to the patient. And then they also tied up with hospitals to give uh, a secondary care if required. So it created this whole uh, ecosystem of rural healthcare and uh, backed by a technology backbone. And they've, they've done phenomenally well in the last 10 years. They have raised uh, four, maybe six, seven rounds of funding. So Raghav, apart from that, like, so these are, this is a company out of East India? 
This is based out of Calcutta, and then they shifted uh, some of their operations to Bangalore because you know you were not getting the product managers in Calcutta. So that's one of the issues that East India has that there's not enough tech talent out there. What is your opinion, and what is your sort of way that you can think that East India can sort of move ahead of, out of this rut that we're stuck in, that we don't have the resources or the minds or the people, and then like you know people keep these ideas and all will keep moving out of here. So I think uh, see the Asian network that we created was uh, quite a big fillip. But what we found that there's enough capital to invest in entrepreneurs, that, but there are not many entrepreneurs who can run with that capital, right? So, capital is not the constraint. The constraint is the mindset of the people who want to do entrepreneurship in East India. And because East India is very family business dominated, and there are not enough large uh, companies here that have a large number of professionals want to uh, start their own businesses because most people join their family businesses and uh, the family business in that sense is very traditional over here because they don't want to sponsor the next generation to start something and everybody thinks that they should just join the family business so if you look at uh, cities like Delhi Bangalore, Mumbai there are a lot, large number of multinationals that operate over there so what happens is that the uh, young population joins these multinationals, uh, learns the ropes, makes their network, and then starts their own business. Now, the reason why these multinationals have not been in East India is because, like I said, of those 30, 35 years of misrule, or rather I would say a certain kind of uh, ruling of the Communist Party, which made industry go away from uh, East India. Right. So if you look at the last 40, 50 years, not many industries have been set up in the new age businesses, whether you look at IT or pharma or uh, IoT or startups in the in the technology space, fintech, etc. It's because this whole government support, I think, needs some more Philip uh, in terms of attracting these uh, sort of large companies. And that's where the whole emergence of these entrepreneurs comes from. The second reason is that family offices of traditional family businesses also need to start backing uh, the youngsters with capital and believe in the youngsters rather than say, okay, uh, you don't know much, you're just a fresher and you need to sort of first learn the ropes in your family business and then you have to grow this family business whether you like it or not. So I think these are the two main reasons of uh, why East India has still fallen behind the rest of the country. You know, it's a very chicken-egg problem. And it's also a very dating problem. So single guys keep saying that there are no girls. Single women keep saying that there are no guys. Both are always looking. And then, you know, when they look, they're already couples. Just like that, investors always say nobody to invest in. People looking for capital are like, nobody wants to invest in me. <laughs> so when this problem... Let's, let's talk about this problem with the perspective of India, right? So now... Shark Tank is in India. People are aware of the infrastructure of investment. What change have you seen in India over this whole horizon from 2002 till now? And what do you see in the future? For the country, for East India, let's let's go both. See, for East India, I can say that being here for the last 21 years now working professionally, is that the entrepreneur has to do a lot of things himself. 
Like there's not a lot of support, like I mentioned, from uh, large multinationals out here who can guide you or from family businesses who can guide you because we are in this transition phase. So the elder generation sort of work with their uh, family businesses. So they don't know how the process system of the world has moved on in the last 20 years. So even a boy coming or a girl coming out of a family business has to sort of learn the ropes himself or herself. And that is one major challenge. And that's why you find a lot of young people going to Bombay, Delhi, Bangalore because they have the opportunity to, to learn in these large companies. So I think that mindset is slowly, slowly changing in East India because uh, a lot of the people now in my sort of generation understand what it's all about, right? So we are like mid-40s, uh, children maybe in, teen, in the teenage years. So we can then guide them and mentor them on how, you know, to integrate with this sort of ecosystem that's happening globally and there's a rapid change uh, that's happening very, very fast. Uh, in India as a country, I think we have sort of transitioned already in the last four or five years. If you see, there have been huge government uh, programs which are helping startups. So let's say uh, Startup India, Invest India, uh, then Niti IO, then Incubation Center, Atal Innovation Mission. So there are like four or five large programs that exist in India to support entrepreneurs. Then there are a large number of co-working spaces. There are hundreds of venture capital funds now. There are five, six large angel networks that have sprung up in the last uh, 10 years. So if you talk about financing, government support, if you talk about multinationals, all these factors have come together now in the last 10 years. And that's why you see uh, five, six large uh, startups have got listed on the stock exchange. And they're doing very well now. There was a blip for a bit, but I think now they're doing very well. And the Indian market and the investor also understands how to invest in these companies is very different from the rest of the sort of traditional companies. So I think if you talk about uh, Gurgaon, Bangalore, Mumbai, etc., those markets are pretty well established. So I think East India, we are just going through this transition. And I think another five to six years, we should also see some good uh, startups coming out from here. Shiragav, I watched this episode. I am inspired. I live in the I live in East India or like somewhere else. And I believe that Raghav can help me. And Raghav has capital and Raghav just said there are not enough entrepreneurs. How do I find you? Where do I go? How do I get access? And how can you help me? People need to sort of uh, start moving out of their skin in East India. Because I think people are a little bit subdued out here. And there are lots of events happening in chambers of commerce. So I was part of this uh, panel uh, two weeks ago at Indian Chamber, which was organizing a seven-country uh, panel on uh, how you can interact with each other within these seven countries and create ecosystems. So we had a fantastic attendance over there. And there were like about 200 people who came. And there were various stakeholders, right? There was Bengal government, there was STPI, which is the science and technology parks of India, there was NASCOM, there was TIE, there was Indian Chamber of Commerce, and there were people from angel networks and incubators and accelerators, right? So I think the best way uh, what one can do is basically start attending these events. And once you start attending these events, you build a network and you get to know what's happening in the city. Uh, then, for example, last week, there was a massive TIECON, a TIE event in uh, Calcutta where People came from all over the world to talk about entrepreneurship, not only India. And these some of these guys are like really senior people who started NASCAR. 
So I think there's a lot of stuff going on when it comes to funding. Uh, we started the angel network, but then because we realized there's not enough pipeline here, we sort of merged it with uh, Mumbai Angels. And then India Infoline actually bought it over. So, you know, if a company like India Infoline, which is a massive company, sees value in these uh, entrepreneurs and startups, so there is enough capital that can be got. I mean, capital can be also got from outside the city if there are enough startups here. So I think it's not really about the money. It's really, again, about the entrepreneurship culture and the startups and the ideas. And also, lastly, the long-term vision that the entrepreneurs have. I think that is sort of lacking. Raghav, how does one get to know about these events? Like you're talking about these two or three events that have taken place in the last two, three weeks. And I, for one, have no clue with like how to get a hold of them and how do, are they, are they open for all? Do you, are you, is anyone and everyone allowed to come here? Yeah. So I think if you just search the internet about uh, startup events in Calcutta, you'll get a lot of sort of events popping up. Uh, I think IAM Calcutta, IIT Kharagpur, these institutions, St. Xavier's College. So if you talk about educational institutes, they organize a lot of events. Uh, if you just read the a lot of hoardings, like Taekwon, I know, had a lot of hoardings in uh, the city put up in various places as to, you know, when the event is going to happen. So I think one just needs to sort of uh, search the net a bit, look around, read the papers, and I think you'll get a fair idea of what's going on. You know, it is a very straightforward answer and yet it doesn't hit you because we've been thinking of how do we reach out to more founders and how do we find more founders? And the answer is like, search the internet for entrepreneurial events. <laughs> you find more founders, right? So you don't think of it. I feel like another problem that a new entrepreneur, say, probably like a first generation entrepreneur faces, how do you overcome the fear and how do you dodge society of the question of, why don't you just get a job or, you know, XYZ has a job or XYZ does a family-owned business. Just get that. How do you dodge that and how do you fight against that? I mean, it's uh, firstly, people need to convince, I think, the parents that, uh, you know, maybe what is in the family business is not my area of interest. So if I'm really not interested in that, uh, practically speaking, I'm not being able to sort of give my mind to it, right? So I'm just going to go sit around people, do some work and come back. But I will not be able to get interest and really grow that business. So as in, as a person, you have to convince people around you, whether it's your family, friends, whatever, that you need to be doing something which you're really passionate about. And this keeps coming up in conversations that I have, is that you must find your passion, right? If you have your passion identified, you will have enough convincing power and beliefs in what you're saying to people that this is what I really want to do. And uh, and people see that, right? Whether it's, so I've got a daughter. If I, my daughter tells me with a lot of passion that this is what I really want to do and this is how I'm going to do it. Of course, if you go and say, I want to do this, but I don't know or I don't have any idea how we're going to do it, then people might not believe you. Because the initial years when a person finishes colleges, you have to build a lot of trust because People will say, okay, you're a fresher, you're maybe academically, you're great, but you don't have any real world experience, right? And this is a card that elders should always play that I have more real world experience where you don't have any real world experience. So I think that bridge needs to be crossed by giving facts, uh, stating about your passion, showing a sort of roadmap as to how you're going to achieve it. And then I think people are also willing to sponsor because capital comes at the end. 
So what people normally think entrepreneurs is that we are going to first go and raise capital. But I think a lot of groundwork first needs to be done in terms of setting up the whole structure, uh, convincing yourself and people around you that this is how you're going to flow. And then maybe they will only sponsor you. So you don't have to really go in the market. We have this thing of anti-selling. Anti-sell yourself. Anti-sell the whole model of capital, you know, raising. They don't do it. It is bad. If you were to completely anti-sell me on capital raising, what would you do? So I think capital raising is not the toughest part. The deployment of capital is the toughest part. So I think when you go out in the market and say, I want to raise capital, but do you know how to sort of use that capital efficiently to generate profits or growth, etc. So capital raising uh, is when you are convinced of your business model, when you have traction, when you have sort of paying customers or let's say at least pilot projects, that's when people say, okay, we are going to go and raise capital. Secondly, if your business is a cash generating business, you don't need to raise capital at all. For example, there are a lot of businesses which from day one, they earn revenue, they are profitable. So why should you raise capital? I mean, just because the rest of the world is raising capital, you don't need to be out there to raise capital. If your business requires it to raise capital at particular points on time, then you go and raise it. Otherwise, you just focus on your business model, operations, hiring people, getting customers, etc. Raghav, I want to talk about you. You told me that you've pivoted four times. Can we get into those pivots? What they were, why they happened, how they came about? I mean, uh, when I graduated, I wanted to join a large multinational base out of London. I loved the London life. Like any uh, Indian would say, like, New York and London is the place to be, right? Because we've been fed into a system that, you know, these are the places that where you should live because that's where all the action is. Um, so, honestly speaking, when we graduated, September 11th happened, the attacks took place and all hiring was frozen for three years. So, I don't know if it was lucky or unlucky, but I had to come back to India at that point in time. So, uh, the mindset of finishing the MBA, working in London, etc. was gone. So, I think that was the first pivot. Uh, that I had to come back to India and sort of see uh, how to do things in India. Uh, second pivot was, you know, join the family business. I, I tried to do that for a few years, but it did not work, right? So that was the second pivot. Uh, third pivot was working in large funds. So I worked in large funds for six, seven years, large companies, got to know processes and systems. But it was too, after a while, it was too sort of process driven for me and I'm more entrepreneurial. So I quit that and started my own ventures. So that was the kind of the fourth pivot. And then within the entrepreneurial journey as well, I started Calcutta Angels and Neoli. But then I found I needed a larger team, which is more globally sort of exposed. And then I became a partner in this Swiss firm called Anchor Group, which was the fifth pivot. So you see, like in a span of 20 years, then we, there've been four or five pivots. So that's how my journey has been. What does it take for someone to pivot? Like what, what internally does it take? You know, other than just the support system, you had to leave a huge chunk of money to chase a dream. So how does your mind work and something like this? I think it's basically about, are you happy with your daily work, right? When you get up in the mornings, do you feel happy? Uh, about going to work or working from home, whatever. 
does it really satisfy you at the end of the day and i don't think it's driven by money really it's driven by what uh, you are intrinsically as a person it's driven by what uh, kind of ecosystem you want to build with what kind of people you want to interact with i might be making a lot of money in my family business but what kind of people i mean if you're doing a real estate business you're mostly interacting with a certain set of people who are centered around real estate but i might i might not want to build that peer group so that's why i chose to move to the fund industry because you're dealing with a certain kind of people there who are sort of luckily for me globally exposed well educated and want to do new things right so there's a certain kind of curiosity that keeps you going so i think for me that was very important like curiosity in people and that's the kind of ecosystem i met in sort of big so raga what gets you up in the morning ah uh, well just all the things that i mentioned really uh, yeah golf for sure <laughs> golf is like an early morning thing uh no but golf also helps because uh, it really teaches you to focus it teaches you to overcome challenges uh, no matter what you do there will be a challenge going forward just focus on that uh, particular shot and focus on well, forget about the previous shot and get about what you're going to do in future but just focus at the present moment and uh, also curiosity right that driven by knowledgeable people who are trying to sort of create an impact so the entrepreneurs i talk to uh, they are trying to create an impact they are driven uh my team which is cross functional is driven to help these entrepreneurs sort of achieve their goals in life uh and technology transfer to increase process efficiency get more innovation in 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 the world really and we are also doing circular economy which is to do with the environment so i think all of these kind of things put together really uh, sort of keep me happy so one one last thing before our last segment that i have for you i watch this and i want to be raga i want to have the funds and i want to be able to talk to people what kind of understanding do i need what kind of money do i need and is there anything else that i need to become raga in today's world i think it depends on the kind of business that uh, you're doing i mean money amount will depend uh, vary from business to business so really uh, i don't want to comment on that portion because uh let's say if you're doing a very small startup with a small market size you don't need that much capital but if you want to do a startup like let's say nowadays chat gpt is the buzzword the whole world is your market uh you'll need massive amounts of capital to sort of get there uh and internally like i mentioned whatever drives you every day is what you have to figure out otherwise you're not going to be able to sustain it so let's say you find your passion what keeps you happy and what keeps you motivated and you keep doing that day in and day out and the success has to follow because uh, there was a person very successful person who said if you do something for 15 16 years uh, every day and you are really interested and passionate about it you will achieve success it's a 100% guarantee so i think the driving forces are not money for sure it's more about what keeps you going what keeps you gets you up in the morning uh seeing so more things like that to wrap up we have this tradition on our podcast we will ask you a question that was asked to you by our last founder and then we ask you for a question that we will ask to our next founder i think that sounds fair enough the question we have for you is what do you think should be a good slash right way to meditate 
so that's uh, not tough for me because I met my wife through meditation. Uh, we have a spiritual guru, and that's how we met. And the there is no what I have learned is there is no particular location or time to meditate. It's just you can do it anywhere in the world, any whether in the car, in the office, uh, in the bathroom, anywhere. So you just need basically ten minutes of downtime. You focus on a particular spot. At least what I do is focus on a particular spot on your forehead, or you just focus on your breathing, and it makes you really calm. So I think that's my take on meditation. 